HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network, a show about food, culture, and identity. I'm your guest host today, Leah Kurtz, and joining us over the phone is Michael W. Twitty, antebellum chef, culinary historian, and food scholar. Michael is a prolific food writer and cultural critic at the intersection of race and food politics in the United States. His new, much acclaimed book, The Cooking Gene, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South, traces the history of Southern cooking with his own family's genealogy. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hi, it's so great to be here. Great. So, um... Can you just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what prompted you to begin exploring your identity through the lens of food? Um, I think it's just the fact that, you know, I grew up in a country where um, it's really weird how much um, racism has penetrated, how we stereotype people um, through food, through culture, through drink. I think nobody gets this worse than African Americans. I mean, when's the last time you heard someone go, "Ha ha, you Navajo are fry bread eaters"? <laughs> yeah. You know, oh wow, don't you Italians could leave that ravioli alone? Mm-hmm. But you know, just the other day ago, we had um, Fox News, um, a Fox News and friends having an African American child wearing a watermelon costume. Uh-huh. And that sets up all sorts of racial dog whistles. But when you're a black child, you grow up in a world where you have all this baggage in front of you that nobody ever explains to you where the baggage came from. Or why it's even your responsibility to deal with it. That's what sets you off. 
Mm-hmm. Not only that, but also just trying to figure out why do we eat certain things? Why are certain things part of our tradition, our culture, part of our history? And, you know, as I explained in the book, no one ever sat me down until I asked the question. And I asked the question, well, what's this phrase? What does that got to do with me? Um, you know, aren't we all the same? You know, black children don't, don't grow up believing their history is any different than anybody else's until that fateful day they figure out, oh, yeah, it is. And this is why. And that's a really hard conversation for our parents and our elders to have with our young people because it's not a pleasant one. And so food is this thing that brings people together and also kind of like softens the blows of the more negative parts of our history has always been my way of trying to understand that sort of literally visceral every day-to-day means of dealing with one's identity and one's past. Yeah, that sounds quite therapeutic, actually, to kind of like start digging into that. It's very loaded, right, personally. Yeah. It's like you can't help but feel your base up and be in my shoes. Yeah. So... So you kind of like, of course, like we all do, we grow up around food and you started cooking, but um, it wasn't until 2011, right, that you began this project, the the Cooking Gene Project, and kind of started the very uh, like lengthy and deep work of tracing your genealogy. And that involved everything right from genetic testing and traveling and digging through archives and actually visiting plantations, correct? Right, everything. I mean, um, 2011, um, started the project, got money for it in 2012 through um, crowdfunding for the Southern Discomfort Tour. Um, All of that implied, energy implied in that title. And... um, spent several years sewing together the pieces of something I already had. I mean, I had a tremendously well-traced family tree uh, on my mother's side because of my uncle's work, but it wasn't complete. And there were also narratives on my father's side that weren't complete. And I began to forget, you know, um, I could tell you generic details, but I was starting to forget the fine print. And so I really wanted to be able to tell our story and I thought, well, telling it through food is essential because we don't know the names of these cooks. We don't know the names of these eaters. We don't have, the, we don't have their life stories. We, um, very rarely did you see those two parts of the narrative put together, the lives of the enslaved and the food they produced. Oftentimes it was like the slaves or West Africans, and it was always this generic thing. And I really wanted to know you know, what ethnic group my people came from. Um, multiple ethnic groups, of course. Um, I really wanted to know what plantations were they on? Where were the plantations? Could I actually walk those plantations? Could I, could I, could I go on that land and find anything of value in terms of the food culture? How, what, in other words, what's my location in this history I've been studying? Can I put the microscope on myself to see if anything's come down to me? And that's what started this project. And, like, initially... You, I mean, how did that actually begin? You traveled back to, like, where, I mean, were both of your parents from the same kind of area, or did this... No, okay. different parts of the South have been some. Okay. And I started finding more and more locations um, and more and more places where people were sold away to. Um, and I ended up just kind of, like, 
circumnavigating the entire southern region, from east to the eastern shore of Maryland, all the way to East Texas, from the Little Dixie in Missouri uh, to the Blue Hill down to Florida, from Kentucky to the Gulf Coast. Wow. I mean, covering every single possible region, the Low Country, Appalachia, the Chesapeake Bay, all of it. Wow, so you've seen more of this country than probably most of us have. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it was like place to place to place, every single part of the, part of the, um, the South. Wow. And, and I mean, did you, and before you did that, did you do the genetic, or the, um, the testing to kind of like see just like what's in your blood actually? Yeah, I really want, really want to know what ethnic groups, um, and it kind of came, kind of came after the fact. So I had this whole like, thorough sort of, um, understanding of where we were from in the South. And then I started getting the genetic information sort of coming in bit by bit by bit afterwards. Mm. And the first test I did was like very basic mm-hmm. when ancestry's results were only so much. And then the next test was well, the next test was from African ancestry. And that was essential because I got, you know, information that said, oh, yeah, you are a Khan and you are a Mende. And then the next test from Ancestry gave me more information, but I did more tests with African Ancestry and so on and so forth. Is this something you incorporated your other, like, living family members into doing as well? Because I know, like, with the, whatever, yeah. like, 23 and Me, it's, like, it's more beneficial if you have more family members who do it. Did that kind of, like integrate your family as this collective action of like reclaiming this like lost these lost memories yeah absolutely i mean i had to i had to basically test everybody i could find in order to make it work um that was a central part of this wow i mean i really had to you know my grandfather um maternal uncle everybody wow and did you did you kind of envision that this would end up being um, a book or, um, you know, were you just kind of, was it open-ended or did you assume that that would kind of be the, the evolution of the project? Oh, not at all. I didn't think about, I really did not think about this being a book. I didn't know what it was going to be. All I knew was I was doing this to give myself a sense of peace of mind. Mm. That's all. I mean, I, I mean... Not only, I mean, I've said this in other places, but the, the, the trajectory was Paula Dean happens in terms of her issues. I wrote about that. My letter to Paula Dean went viral. And then I got the attention of literary agents, and they were like, well, what kind of story do you have to tell? And I just happened to have this big story to tell <laughs> about who we were and where we came from. Yeah. Wow. And and when you and for listeners who, you know, maybe aren't aware, like this was back in 2013 and, you know, there was a lot of media outrage at Paula Deen's dropping the N-word and you, you know, penned this really um, poignant and empathetic but very direct letter to her um, that, yeah, really brought home a lot of deep-seated um, systemic racism that, you know, we kind of made this... Um, you know, like 
spectacle of her for saying this word that is, of course, um, you know, horrible. But, you know, we a lot of these other issues are left very much um, ignored and very much invisible. And we don't have as much outrage at them or the media doesn't tend to. Right. Um, now, when you kind of talk about like you're in the book, you talk about your ancestry and like the fact that it's, you know, you comes from all over but it's both black and white um like at what point did you kind of discover this and did it change your understanding of yourself like you of course like you talk about many facets facets of your identity you're southern you're jewish you're gay you're a writer you're a chef you know you you are right. like, like all of us you're a very multifaceted human but when you kind of discovered these um more specific pieces did that affect you you know just personally um, when we were, when we were very young, we were made aware, like, in a lot of black families, you know, there's a point where, you know, this discussion comes up about, you know, who you come from. And on both sides of my family, there were these whispers, rumors, and discussions about white relatives and ancestors. And... You don't really know or discover or think about who that comes from until you hit, you know, your, you know, facts of life years. And then you go, this is really messed up. This isn't quaint. This isn't fun. This isn't cute. This isn't, you know, there's no connectivity to it. I mean, it's, it's an act of violence. Um, and that's that's the that's the part where it really gets to be difficult, you know, for most African American, but especially African American young people, to really understand and comprehend it. So we um we we struggle with this. Like almost every African American knows that they are. So it's no big surprise. I mean, I'm, I'm every now and then they find somebody who's shocked. I don't know why they're shocked, um, given the history that we know. But to me, one of the ways I express it in the book is I go visit the plantation that my fifth white great-grandfather owned. Um, I didn't have any black relatives in that plantation that I know of. I may have collateral relatives, but not direct relatives. And the bottom line was I found the records of his plantation when he died, probate records. And his probate records were actually pretty incredible because they contained a wealth of information about um, food and where, you know, things were, what crops were grown, who he, who he paid, food, paid money to for food, including enslaved people. That was a common practice to buy food from enslaved people, people of color. Um, and what kind of utensils were in his kitchen? So it was like, I could tell you everything that was in his dining room, Every tool in his kitchen, every dish, every 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 utensil, every everything. But also knowing that if I was back there in that time, even though I'm this man's descendant, I could never eat with him, never eat with him side by side. And that is one of the deep ironies of this history. And I'm preserving his story at the same point in time, dealing with the fact that even in life and in death, we are separate and equal. Hmm. Yeah, and you, you talk about, like, this, um, 
the the kitchen itself. I mean, you you know, you're this like direct intimacy with these objects and this space that you yeah, um, in this home that you would have been relegated to the kitchen and that and as a place of of routine sexual violence that you know rapes right. that result in these pregnancies that result in these you know blended bloodlines of like the slave and the slave owner and you know like it's kind of a it's kind of a very relevant con- I mean it's always a conversation that we can have but you know in light of this national discussion about sexual assault and and especially in kitchens in restaurant kitchens especially right now like um, can you talk a little bit about like this historic experience of black women being, you know, assaulted oh, yeah. their bodies, like, and that how this is not a narrative that we really talk about. And, and as far as, you know, how it relates to this like cultural and racial amnesia, like we, you know, we rally and we have this trending hashtag for, you know, white women's bodies, but what about the historical like experience of black women's bodies? Well, you know, first of all, we have to talk about the geography of plantations. The the big house kitchen was separate from the big house, ninety um, percent of the time. So ninety percent of the time, it's a, sec- it's a secondary building, beside or behind the big house, and it's a place where enslaved women work. They cook, they do laundry, everything. It's also a place where, at any given time. An overseer, the male child of a slaveholder, a slaveholder himself, to take advantage of women of color. Um, shut off from or cut off from the eyes of their wives and mothers. And that's what happens in my family. These women, the, the fact that these, these women are the cooks puts them at grave um, danger. It opens them up to this tragedy of being molested and assaulted. And it is, when I talk about these things, I don't talk about them just to talk about them. I talk about them because people would have you believe that Southern food just comes to be, it is born in a sort of like effortless peak, and it's not. It's these kind of situations, these blending of cultures and bloods by force and by violence and by the common application of the black body that makes the Southern table possible. And we don't have this conversation in clear and lucid language where we really get into who suffered, who paid a price, then we'll never actually have any sort of peace and truth in our work. And it won't be honest and authentic. So I really force, I really try to force people to understand that it wasn't, you know, kumbaya that brought us to this table or that built this table or put food on it. Yeah, that's, uh, and, you know, this, you know, we, we understand, like, the brutality of, of the field, but we don't really understand this history of the brutality of the kitchen. Right, and that kitchen was a, split, a, split, a place where um, it, male enslaved people were assaulted and molested. It was a place where um, a cook could be severely punished, um, maybe put a mask on their face they couldn't eat, or even or been burned alive for making mistakes in the kitchen in terms of the culinary process. I mean, it really, I mean, slavery at its worst was a night. And slavery at best was, um, you know, 
this sort of like benign, fuzzy paternalism that was actually quite sinister. So we don't talk about good slaveholders and the good old days and all that nonsense. We really just try to make people understand that Southern food had a very messy birth and a very messy um, maturation. And it's because of that that we really have to sort of like deal with these issues head on and make sure people know and understand what they are about. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back um, with Michael Twitty on Food Without Borders. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients, food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature, food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Welcome back to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Leah Kurtz, and today we're speaking with Michael W. Twitty, who is a culinary historian, food scholar, and author of the new book, The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South, which traces the history of Southern cuisine and genealogy and African-American identity in the U.S., and today we are, um, we're, you know, right now we've kind of been talking about this intersection of the history of Southern food. It's a very personal issue for you, Michael, as it's like your, your very identity is embedded in it. Um, and let's talk a little bit about some of the people that are a part of Southern cuisine that we maybe don't know about. Like we all know about James Beard, but most of us have never right. heard about James Hemings, who you talk about in your book. Can you kind of share this rich, um, often ignored legacy of African-American chefs and cooks in kitchens from, yeah, the South to the White House? Sure. Um, and I'm going to talk about, you know, my colleague Adrian Miller has done a lot more work on the White House, so <laughs> um, you should have him back on and talk about that a little bit more in detail. Yeah, we should. Um, but, um, you know, James Hemings was the brother of Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. who everybody knows as the um, woman who, with whom Thomas Jefferson had several mixed-race children. Um, Sally Hemings was Thomas Jefferson's wife's half-sister, and James was also his wife's half-brother. So they were so this kind of intercon- interconnectivity, um, not by choice was, you know, ready and available right then. James travels to France with Jefferson at age 19 and becomes this massively um, successful chef. He 
works his way to the court at Versailles, educates himself in southern food, sorry, French food, forgive me, and learns to become fluent in French. He's easily the most well-trained and most um, um, gifted and traveled chef in early Federalist America. I mean, as America is being born, he is the best chef America has. Mm. And people talk about how, you know, Jefferson's table was half French and half Virginian in style. Well, when I say Virginian, you know he's talking about this mixture of African, European, and Native foodways that's been brewing there for quite some time with its peanuts and its okra and its black-eyed peas and its watermelon and its rice and its hot peppers and muskmelons um, and so forth. And just the use of French technique kind of amplified it and took it to another level. But the bottom line was he was serving a gourmet version of African cuisine to, to uh, the president and his friends. Wow. And that's, I mean, yeah, like that's, uh, that's a, I mean, and not to glorify like Eurocentric cuisines, but I mean, that is certainly not something that, um, you know, it's not a story we're really being made aware of, of this, like, you know, maybe it's just, oh, this was French food, but not talking about the person who was cooking it, which I mean, that's a problem now, of course, and the way we talk about food and obscure the people who actually cook it. Exactly. Um, now, like, so specific foods that, you know, like we, yeah, we talk about that are tied to, um, you know, the South, but also going beyond that um, to the, you know, African culture from which they were brought over. Let's talk about rice. I found this to be a really fascinating subject that you've um, spoken about as kind of the symbolic food that's kind of really captured um, when you talk about culinary justice or culinary injustice and how you know that relates to land rights which is such a foundational component right. of you know food justice and um, specifically the Gullah Geechee people and kind of this entrenchment of racism with capitalism can you like tell us tell us about rice sure um, so nowadays we have this renewed interest in Carolina Gullah rice as a boutique ingredient and the problem is, is that it's expensive, it's not democratic at all, it's, it's raised as a boutique ingredient. Um, however, back in the old days, this was America's number one rice, its number one rice export, and it made planters into millionaires. It was, a, you know, and it was made into a million-dollar crop through African know-how, brought from Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Gambia, and Senegal. Those are my ancestors, by the way. Mm. That's why I did this work, so I could actually understand where they fit into the story. And they were women brought from those regions. And so when you kind of process that, and you know that these women came and brought these traditions to the South, the rice kitchen, all that cookery, all those recipes separate by Europe, separate by Native America, mixed together. What you think about today, well, it's not always our advantage to have, you know, all these traditions in our hands. I mean, Gullah Geechee people 
have been writing about their own identity and their own heritage for generations. But, you know, it wasn't until when European-American chefs got their hands on the same, you know, culinary material that other people began to care about it. And that's really upsetting because you know that the Gullah culture is struggling to survive. I mean, you're being pushed off your land because of golf courses. You're being pushed off your land because of segregation. You're pushed off your land because of um, inability to pay property taxes and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's just a mess for anyone, anyone who wants to and tries to establish a delegation business that wants to support other delegation people. So, you know, the significant part of this book is, you know, peeling back those layers to what we can do to help that community survive. And what we can do to help all black communities survive that have a very similar issue with gentrification but also with laws and rules that disenfranchise the community's natural growth. Yeah, and it's and it's not only food that you've talked about, like it's like that's these kind of naturalized, invisible, you know, products that have really been very much appropriated and taken and not much retribution has been given back, you know, like the, the wealth of the right. South built the industrial revolution and like who is benefiting from that? Certainly not the people that did the labor and brought that knowledge and that the farming technology of how to even grow the crops. Um, and that's this is an injustice that perpetuates as the wealth grows. Right. And uh, and, and one kind of interesting thing that I, you've talked about is how language has also kind of been taken from African people and the word yum, kind of its etymology that I, I certainly yeah. didn't know about. Can you explain? So, um, you know, it used to joke, and it's only a half of a joke, that when people used to um, see in a dictionary, origin unknown, talking about black people. <laughs> well, there's something specific to that, because words like yum, um, there's no precedent for European languages. Until you get to West African languages and you hear um, people go, yam, which means to eat in Wolof and Fula. So, yam, yam, eat, eat, you know, when uh, a mom might tell a child in West Africa, yam, yam, in Senegal, Gambia. And so the whole idea of yam to eat was carried into Belagichi, was carried into Jamaican Patois, carried into Spanish English. So we have that part of the story. Mm. So, yum, yum. But if you remember, <laughs> this kid is sitting there eating this food. There's a woman who, is, you know, walks from West Africa telling him to eat and tell, saying this word to him over and over again. And he can't, he doesn't really hear the NY sound. And all he hears is, yum, yum. How they, what, what are they going to associate that word with? So it's my way of saying to people that, you know, even your etymology has to change because we're not perfectly sure where things come from until we know so. A lot of work. And that's why I love it because it's very specific and very true to the people who, who came up with these ideas. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, let's get, like, the Oxford English Dictionary on the phone, right? Like, they need to, <laughs> they need to catch up. <laughs> Yes, 
So um, one thing that really stood out is, I mean, this book is beautifully written. It's this really lovely, I mean, truly, um, it's it's memoir, it's travel writing, it's history, it's genealogy. Um, but the way you tell it is, I mean, it's um, informative, but it's very poetic. Um, and you kind of reference like James Baldwin and Audre Lorde and like there are these great, um, you know, like literary figures uh, in our culture that you're kind of, you know, weaving in and, uh, you know, have like who stands out as your some of your greatest literary influences, both in style and also like what they contributed as cultural critics. Wow. Uh, so James Baldwin is definitely in there. Um, there was a book by an art historian, I forget her name at the moment, and it was, um, called, I think it was called Art, Cuisine, and Culture, and she does, a, she does a beautiful job because she kind of like says that how people create visual art is a lot about how they cook and vice versa. And so I began to see our, our food civilization as just a continuation of a verbal and visual art aesthetic. And so it enabled me to see the food in the light as the product of civilization and not merely just like direct, you know, we, we tend to think of art, art stuff as rec time. It's not rec time for our culture. It's actually the culture in process, in progress. So I really wanted to, to look into that and reflect that. I think her name was uh, Phyllis, um, that one must be nailed. That first name was Phyllis for that book. Mm-hmm. But um, I read, you know, everything I could again. Rita Dove, um, uh, used to be the poet laureate, uh, Maya Angelou, uh, Tony Morrison, Audre Lorde, um, August Wilson was one of my greatest influences, heroes ever. Um, was about the play Fences, where he did a lot of plays about the Great Migration and coping with the drag of the black Southern identity. Um, I also just read across the spectrum because, you know, those multicultural voices from different places mean something when you're translating your people's history. Mm-hmm. And often, I mean, there's so, I mean, Audre Lorde, for example, like her, you know, biomythography Zamia is like all food all day. Like it's the most beautiful, like kind of erotic and very historical um, portrayal of her life, but very much through food. That's such a, and you wrote about that um, for The Guardian, right? This like beautiful essay about vanilla ice cream and kind of this like sordid history behind that. Yeah, it's like every, all those things, all those stories have something to bear in. I mean, Audre Lorde talked about how she couldn't, you know, go, you know, the DC without experiencing Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. You know, she writes about being descendant of this warrior class of people from West Africa, Dalme, from Dalmay, women warriors who were always on on um, on call to defend their people, their land. And I just thought all of that all that energy is so important to my own sense of self work in writing this. You have to believe that you're worth something to write things like this. You can't just say I'm, I'm sort of proud to be black. You got to go the whole way. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that definitely shines through. Um, so, like, you know, people obviously, like, are going to, you know, want to get in touch with you and maybe follow up like you or, you know, you're 
sharing on social media, your blog, uh, the Afro Culinaria. Um, what's the, can you tell everyone a little bit about how they can find you and more specifically how they can get a copy of this book? Sure. Um, I have, I'm on Kosher Soul at Twitter. That's Kosher Soul at Twitter. I'm the Cooking G on Instagram. I'm Michael W. Twitty on uh, my Facebook fan page. We also have a Cooking Gene fan page. It really helps people sign up and like those pages and retweet and um, share things. I mean, if you have no money to buy a book, I understand. But if this message resonates with you, those shares and those retweets mean something. Every time you do that, you inform your friends and family about the book. They can get the book. They can go to the library and get the book. Um, this message has never been told this way before. And we want other people and other stories to be told that have the same sort of gravity, weight, diversity. Teaching is something new. We have to really support products like this and keep them alive and thriving. So go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, go to your independent bookstore if you have one, order it there. I'm more than happy to say support those distribution. But also, if you can't do that or, or if that's another, it's not a fee for you, please feel free. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, and acquire a copy. Um, you know, this book to me is um, everything. It's an example of, you know, the hard work that each one of us has to do to find our place in the world. Um, but I, wanted, I want people to have that same experience for themselves. And that's really why I want them to read this book. Because I, I think that in our current political and cultural climate, where we have so much unhealthy discourse and hatred, it would help that we would know each other, be friends to each other, and be able to hack connect ourselves in a peaceful and joyful manner. Because this country is an amazing place, but it's come at a great cost. But we don't want to have to pay another great cost to see how great it is in the future. And um, as a person who is of many different backgrounds and intersectional identities, I just want it to be a welcoming place for us all. I want everybody at the table, no matter what. Well, it's a it's a beautiful life's work, and really, it's yeah, it's only kind of beginning this broader conversation that um, has yeah so much underneath it. Really, just kind of scratching the surface of what is there, and I think it's 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 an incredible conversation that you've really kind of started. No, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Michael, for being on the show, and thank you to our listeners. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Heritage of uh, Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.